This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. But again, Brad Clark in studio today to chat about all kinds of things going on locally and around the world. And because of Brad's background as a city and provincial politician, we're going to uh, we're going to tap into that part of your knowledge and your that side of you because let's. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that stuff better than just about anyone else. And I want to start right there because. I fooled you too. Well, <laughs> hey, you didn't win to be mayor. Uh, <laughs> I clearly didn't know enough. <laughs> um, the first thing I want to ask you about, and it's again, something that came up in the last day or so covers both of those bases. And that is this topic of the city and the province discussing HSR, LRT should the city be taking over running the LRT. Don't want to ask you specifically about that. I want to ask you about the broader question. The city was told, yeah, you can do it if you want, but you have to decide by June 24. We must have a motion, the province said, by June 24, deciding one way or another. Sorry, January 24, of course. Uh, We have a Christmas break coming up, and city council takes a good Christmas break, and they were supposed to meet this week, and that meeting was put off, which cuts the time even tighter to make a decision on this. Is there any possible chance that they can make a decision on this by then? Is there? Yeah, absolutely. It's possible. Okay. Is there any reasonable chance they could that this council, and even if you want to include the last council, where everything has been with this and with the stadium and other things, these big decisions take forever. Is there any reasonable chance this gets decided by then? It's it's a long shot that it would be done quickly, uh, but they, they they clearly could do that. Uh, and I think there's some confusion as to what they actually asked for and why they asked for it. Uh, confusion? Well, they, they, they said they want HSR to run it. Well, that wasn't necessarily what ATU Amalgamated Transit Union 107 was asking for. They want to be the certifying agent, the, the representing, representative body um, for those members, uh, which is a little bit different than the HSR running it. Uh, so the, the ATU could actually turn around and certify the members. Whoever of whoever, yeah. Absolutely. Or they could, uh, if they believe that the successor rights from their collective bargaining agreement that they have with the Hamilton has been breached, they could go to the Ontario Labor Relations Board. Uh, so they have an avenue to go through. So the city could, the council could immediately say, you know what, we heard from the province, we're not going down that road, we don't want any more delays. We did our best. It's up to you guys now to deal with it in terms of certification. It is your responsibility to move on. Um, but I suspect that there's, the deferral is going to be they want more information, and I'm not sure there's more information to be had. Do I get the sense, and I may be off on this, but I get the sense that when they asked the province, we would like to consider running H- running the LRT. We would like our HSR to, to run the LRT. I get the sense that what a lot of the councillors were hoping for was the province to say, not on your life. And then at least the councillors could say, hey, we asked, we tried, we fought for you, but we're not getting it. And when it came back saying, hey, knock yourself out, but you don't just get to put an operator in the front of the train, you got to do everything to do with it. To me, that was a situation they were trying to put a show horse out in front and it blew up now and now they got themselves an issue. Well, and it was a well-drafted um, letter from Metrolinks. I read it in its entirety and, and it really has put the council in an interesting box. Um, the council historically for the last nine, ten years have been saying that uh, it, when LRT comes, there's going to be no municipal money going into it. Zero. Zero. And so now you have the province saying, well, if you want the HSR to run it, you will be paying some of these operating costs. Um, So if they choose to continue to go down that path, then they have now buried themselves with costs that the constituents would be upset about. And the HSR is not a cost-neutral position for the city of Hamilton. No, no, no. (laughs) So so it would be unrealistic to say the LRT would suddenly be a wildly, based on historical precedent, that the HSR would be a wildly profitable venture that could offset. It, at, at best, it might be neutral. It probably, it's going to be costly. Well, the way it's run currently is that particular line, the revenue that they get from that particular line, um, the B line, is about 30% of the total revenue that the HRSA, HSR brings in. So it actually offsets other non So it could make money. Absolutely. But other lines are not making money. And so it's, it's a revenue generator that they use the money elsewhere for. 
Um, but if you're going to pick up additional costs, it's not going to be a revenue generator because you're now experiencing. So, I mean, if I was at the council, I would say, listen, folks, we asked, they came back and they said, this is what's going to happen. We're not really comfortable with that. So we're going to say, continue with the original RFP and to ATU, go ahead and, and certify or go to the, the Labor Relations Board. Um, you have that right. Protect your rights. Do you share my view, though, that this was to try to lo- to give a perception of fighting for the local people? Maybe some actually believed it, but for a lot of them it was, let's show that we're fighting for the local guy or the local woman, but we don't really expect anything back. Do you think, in other words, do you think they were surprised when they got that letter back saying, yeah, whatever, you want to do it? Sure. There you go. I think they've been surprised a few times, including when it was handed to a billion dollars. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think there were a few agendas that at, at play, as with any municipal council. Some who are opposed to LRT saw it as an opportunity of delaying it, and perhaps a change in government might 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 come up with a different outcome. Um, it's been my experience that council, when they write to the province, they, they really do have that sincere interest in having the province address the issue, but they really don't know where the province is going to go. In this case, it, was a, and it wasn't a provincial decision. It was Metrolink's mm-hmm. decision, which is even more troubling. Um, and and, and it, it shows very clearly that there's going to be significant costs to the municipality, unknown risk to the municipality. And if you don't want those operating costs, then just say no now, continue on with the RFP. And then the province still has to come back with the operating agreement. And let's see what happens at that point. I still think there are going to be operating costs for the municipality, but you certainly don't want to accept those by saying, yes, we will still, we will run it. Because now you've admitted that you knew and you accepted those costs. Well, and that flies ex- that flies a hundred percent in the face of what was promised to the voters Correct. that this is going to be not a dime out of your pockets is going to go into this. Correct, and that was Mayor Eisenberger's position and Councillor Ferguson's position. They made it very clear there can't be any sure, money. We'd love a billion dollars, absolutely, but not a dime is coming from Correct. you. Correct. That's a tough one to go back and then at the next election. Why would you up in make that decision and now accept willingly those costs? When you say, wait, no, let the province run it. They were originally going to run it. Let the RFP happen. The union still has rights to protect their members and new members. Let them use their rights uh, and wait for the operating agreement to come back. Now, if the province says, okay, here's the cost that you're going to have, now it's the province's fault, not mine as a councillor. You mentioned one other thing a few moments ago, and it's, <laughs> it's something that's come up a bunch of times before about how this could be delayed into a next government. Let me play cynic. Could there be some city councillors who are now looking at this Metrolink's letter, this meeting, taking this on as a way to delay things so that we have a better chance of not having anything signed, not having any work done, so that if Kathleen Wynne and her government loses, maybe we can get rid of the LRT altogether and start over again with a billion dollars or some amount of money towards different transit? Your question suggests that some of them might be Machiavellian, and it's possible. It is absolutely possible that if they have a, if they are determined to do everything they can to stop it, but they don't want to be seen as being uh, obstructionist. obstructionist, then support an agenda that actually throws up roadblocks down the road in the hopes that you get another kick at the can. Because we're already, I read, I think the mayor said we're already six months behind on yeah, this. Yeah, I, like I, I honestly don't understand that um, because it was two months behind and Metrolink's originally said they were going to continue with the process during that time period while they're making that decision. And they've argued that if, even if the province, even if the municipality wants to, to, to go down that road, they're going to continue operating as though the, the province is going to run it. So then if that's the case, then how did you all of a sudden jump to six months behind? So I, I, a part of it seems more politically motivated and to add pressure to the council. Uh, but I think if, if they were prudent, they would say, the province has spoken, let them do the RFP, let the union do their thing. We're not spending any municipal dollars. This seems to me, when I read the letter, when I hear you talk about it, when I've heard other people talk about it, this seems to me to be a tremendously easy decision to make. If you're going to follow your promise that this is going to be not a dime to the city of Hamilton. There should be no deferral. This thing should be able to be discussed in about four seconds. First person stands up and says, here's the letter, and 
someone else stands up uh, four seconds. I'm being you know, a little <laughs> exaggerating, but but says we promised this was not going to cost the city of Hamilton. If we are going to be men and women of our word on a very contentious issue that we were able to hammer through an agreement, but only because we gave our word. This would seem to me to be just an easy decision to make. And tack onto that, they're 10 months away from, maybe 11 months away from an election. And if you are a city councillor, do you really want to revive and resuscitate and resurrect the whole LRT discussion going into that election? It depends on the city councillor, as we just stated. There's some of them that might have that agenda, that they want to have that happen again. Um, but there I has suppose. been a tradition at city No, but I'm saying the other way, to have changed your mind and gone against your word. Mm-hmm. Right? If you so if you've been against LRT, to go against it again, that's fine, you're consistent Correct. with it. But if you've been someone who is one of the champions of this, champion champion championing it as a zero dime, zero dollar thing for Hamilton, this would be to me a bad time to go flip that entirely around right before an election and say, ah, but you know. That would be a backflip of monumental proportions warranted at the Olympics. Like that's a hard one to come out of in, in an election. So they, they might want to be very careful with their decision here. I just, I just can't imagine this discussion. I mean, I asked you off the top if this discussion will happen quickly. It should. Like, uh, to me, it, sh- it should be an easy discussion to have. But if this thing starts wading into deeper waters, then I see no way you're going to do this by January the 24th. Well, and, and they, they pushed it into, uh, it was off to the, the subcommittee that they have, which is really now general issues. Um, they could have just dealt with it at council. I mean, it was a letter back to council. Council could now respond to it. Um, they didn't need to have more public discussion on it. it. It was simply a question of should the HSR be running this and, and make the decision. So you've been behind the scenes at City Hawk City Council. You've been behind the scenes in the province. What is your guess on how long is this going to, when this comes up for discussion at City Council, is this a long, 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 is this one of those meetings that never ends or is this one, what is your gut feeling or is this one that gets dealt with pretty quickly? It depends on whether or not the councillors actually come to a compromise or an agreement um, behind the scenes and they're talking to each other. If they're not doing that, then you, I, I suspect you're going to have at least a two-hour meeting because some of the councillors will want to relitigate uh, previous positions given the electoral season. How exciting that would be. Oh, yay. <laughs> I got a better idea. Send them off on their Christmas break and play the best of council's LRT debates on PVR. <laughs> Cable 14, just show the best of the council's LRT Yeah, if fight. you tune in and you think, oh, this is it's a time warp. <laughs> How did I get back 10 years? <laughs> Wow, I, I look for I look so forward to those uh, to those future discussions. Can't wait. Get a picnic, get a bottle of wine, and watch the LRT be relitigated all over again. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. The brightest panel in Hamilton Radio, or brightest individual in Hamilton Perhaps Radio. Perhaps the odd couple. <laughs> Let's stay with the city for a moment. Let's stay with uh, city issues for God a bless moment. You, yes, well, in in the wheelhouse because a couple of weeks ago, uh, Councillor Sam Marula made what I thought was a what I thought was a really interesting proposal about what to do with First Ontario Centre and Hamilton Place and the Convention Centre, and the city can't afford to maintain it to build a new one. So let's give the land. And the buildings, but the buildings will get torn down. Let's give the land to a developer. Let's say, build us a rink, build us a conference, a convention center, and then anything else you want to do on that land, yeah, we'll, we-'ll sign off on that. We'll let you build a 30 con a 30 story condo tower or whatever else. Really, to me, that's a really interesting concept. Great. Here's what I don't get. Today, city council voted that they were going to go ahead and spend something like four million dollars to upgrade escalators and elevators at First Ontario Centre. While the Sam Marula idea has been bumped to staff to study it and see how that would work, why would you not do it the other way around and say, let's find out if we're going to do this, if this is something that has some legs? Because if we're going to knock down these buildings in two or three years, potentially, why are we pouring four or five million dollars into these things now? Is this not backwards? 
I, I would say it is. Um, first, Sam's um, suggestion I thought was brilliant. And I want to get to that in a second, but yes. Uh, but in terms of if, if, if there's any possibility that uh, you know that the facility is going to be torn down and something else is going to replace it, then one ought not to spend a whole lot of money. Do the things that are required for safety, um, but beyond that, um, don't go there. The escalator, by the way, has been broken for a long time, a few years. Um, so, you know. Yeah, they're putting 4.3. They voted to put $4.3 million into the escalators and elevators. The escalator, as you say, has been broken and the building has carried on. I mean, you'd like it to be working, but they're also spending, they voted to spend $2 million on protecting bricks from falling off the convention center. Now, to me, that's different because that's a health and safety thing. You can't have a brick fall on someone's yes, head. Yes, but two million seems to be rather well, it is significant. Du- and, just duct tape the yeah, building. Well, and the question is, can could they have done something uh, a lot cheaper and wait to see, a lot less expensive, sorry, um, and wait to see exactly where they're going to go on the facility planning? But it just seems to me so backwards because that... that Six million. Let's say you could have done the bricks for a million and not put the elevators. Well, there's five million dollars you could have put given towards a developer or towards someone to to help. Well, and how how do you explain that you spent six million dollars on this building and then you know, you know a year and a half from now you you choose to demolish it and build fresh? It's well, a significant what, loss. Of what money is especially for, Brad? What is especially going to look bad? I think is. It may take time for the, it will take time if they do it for the buildings to be constructed. Mm-hmm. It may take four or five years. But if you are beginning your work on putting in new escalators, which won't start tomorrow, there's going to have to be putting out tenders and everything else. And the work starts as you're in the middle of a discussion on tearing the place down so that there's almost an overlap. It looks insane. It looks yeah. ridiculous, especially for a city that has no money. And the maintenance companies that, that look after the escalators, they, they're usually pretty good at working with uh, companies and cities and to, to keep the escalator going. Mm. So they make, you know, basically mechanical repairs on it as opposed to, okay, you're going to put in a whole new one. If, if your decision is to try and drag the puck in order to, to move on to something better... They'll work with you on it. And so same with the the bricklayers. It's just a question of making that decision. I just also, to me, it's maybe there's a good explanation. I don't understand it. I don't understand. I think you you do one before the other, not the other before the one. My my concern is that um, they supported Sam's motion for political purposes. um, And a number of them really don't want to go down that road. So that's why they Well, let's go to Sam's motion for a second. Because again, I was, I thought it was a really creative proposal or proposition for a really difficult spot the city finds itself in. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, ah, why are we giving, why are we giving land to rich developers? And I, okay, fine. If if we want to be the. If it's a quid pro quo and they're giving you a 5,000 or 10,000 seat arena. Um, and they're also going to fix up the convention center or build a new convention center to your stats. And you give them the air rights. The air rights would be any building uh, or infrastructure that goes above those. And those air rights are quite expensive. So if you give them those air rights, um, they, in essence, can actually make a fiscal plan that would enable them to build a new uh, arena as well as a convention center because they're going to get the the value from the air rights. And they would have two or three stories of commercial space above the arena or above the convention center and then uh, residential space above that. So there's a buffer between them. They do it in Toronto all the time. They're constantly finding ways to do air rights uh, uh, above subway stations and things like that. And everybody ends up happy. Absolutely. Because the public gets something, not for free, but essentially Mm -hmm. for free. And the builder and the developer gets something for putting in their money. As I say, I understand that there are people who blanch at the idea that rich developers, air quotes, get a chance to make even more money. But if you take the rich developers out of the equation... You are relying on one of two things. You're either relying on a philanthropist to come forward and give you $200 million that may or may not end up going into what you want, or you're relying on the city to... And let's let's not forget the uh, gentleman that owns the Bulldogs. uh, Michael Andlauer. Michael Andlauer, who who came right out and said, I'm willing to put this amount of money into it. 
So you now have someone who's willing to put up money. Um, so that's it, a good starting point right would, off the yeah, bat. Absolutely. And it would be reasonable then to say, okay, are there developers that would have an interest in it? Let's find out. It could be a request for uh, interest or qualifications, and, and they come forward and say, okay, you know, I think we could do something here. Let's talk and talk to three or four consortiums and then move forward with it. But you said I thought Sam's idea was brilliant. But I, you thought you said you think some counselors would be against this. Um, there are would be some who are concerned about the the optics of giving free land um, in downtown to a developer. Um, but I think if you do the work and the study, and you're able to explain exactly what the benefit would be to the city, um, and on top of that, you're getting these new high rises that. Are increasing the tax base and bringing a lot more people downtown. Absolutely, they're living. They would be living there. The I, I thought. He, I thought it. You know, and Sam and I don't always agree on things, but in this case, he he was. He, it was a really progressive and conservative idea. Way to go, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I share that view when I heard it, and yep. in fact, the funny thing is, I think. He shared it first here on the show, and I think he made it up on the show. And because we were talking about Michael Landlauer's proposal, and I think, and if you ask him, I think he'll tell you this. He was talking on the show, and this idea popped out of his mouth, and then he yeah. went, "You can see the light bulb go." That's on. pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Let me write think, that one. I down. think I'll use that yeah. one, <laughs> and, and yeah. that's great. But I, I looked at this, and I went, "It makes so much sense." Again, we're talking about these things with council. I don't see where the fight is. When you don't have money, when the city doesn't have money, you find ways to get stuff done that other people will do it for you. You may find that there's still counselors um, longing for an NHL team, and so they don't want to give up the big coliseum. I think if you're realistic, if you're pragmatic, um, and you're careful, you'll acknowledge that the likelihood of that happening is very slim. And you have someone here who's willing to step up to the plate. Um, and there's no shortage of developers who have experience in developing air rights. If, if, and I say if because it's not happening, but if the NHL suddenly decided to come to Hamilton, even if they decided that they were starting play here on Monday, they're not playing at First Ontario Centre. They are not. That building is now 32 years old. 32? 1985, it's, it's, 32 years old. It's old. It's 30, it would be the oldest building in the NHL other than Madison Square Garden. And Madison Square Garden had a $1 billion renovation. So it's an old building, but it's brand new. They are not playing at First Ontario Centre. You have to build a new arena anyway. So clinging to First Ontario Centre because we might get an NHL team is backwards thinking. If they ever come and there's an arena and a condo and a convention center built on that site, you find a different site downtown and you build a brand new arena anyway. That has to happen anyway. So if some counselor is, as you say, clinging to that hope that we keep this arena alive for that, man, that is holding on to, I don't even know what that, that's holding on to your horse and carriage because you, you know. a windmill. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. What else, though? If so, if if Councillor Marula's idea is as is as good as you and I both think, and if and I've heard from a lot of other people that have said same thing you just did. I don't always agree with Councillor Marula, but this one was a pretty good idea. What else could we do in the city using that kind of oh, thinking, there, where you lots. could give something to the private sector yeah. and say, "Build us this, and we'll give you that." What could you do? Um. LRT stations along the route, you could uh, build area rights above them so that you'd actually have condominiums above where the train is pulling in and they have elevators that come have down. Have they ever it. discussed that? I don't, I don't, think, I don't think they've gotten that far. But they've talked about but they, stations. I, I don't think air rights have, has really been a topic of uh, investment opportunity in Hamilton. It's quite common in large metropolitan areas. Uh, we have a couple of GO stations. I had suggested, I bet you, I was uh, at Queen's Park at the time, that the GO station on Hunter Street, they could have used air rights there. The province could have built, uh, brought in developers to build apartments and you know, And there are big and, condos absolutely, nearby. Absolutely. So there are those opportunities. 
and I think this is the first kick at the can that that the city and and I I think the staff will receive the suggestion that they look into it positively, because there is real potential, and and if you can pull this off with very limited impact on the levy, kudos. Yeah, what would the cost to the city be for something like it, this? It, it would be a negotiation, so I don't know. No, but would there really be any kind of... I mean, the city would have to, I guess, provide the... They'd have to have the land ready for development. So well, all the they, water... They, but that would yeah. already be there. Water, yeah, and hydro, and, they, and all yeah, that Yeah, all stuff. of that is there. They, it's, uh, the services would need to be updated. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I mean... But relatively it, speaking, that's a small cost. Yep. Absolutely. Again, you look at this and I think, I really hope, and, and see, I'm with you. There are people who dump on city council left, right, and center about everything they do. They've never done anything right. I'm not one of those people. I give them credit when credit is due, and Absolutely. I like to tell them when I, you know, and say when I think they're, this one again seems to be one that they can get a big win, that it's very hard to find the negative in this unless they really, really try to find a negative in this. Well, and think of the from this standpoint, the LRT, the construction of the LRT is not going to be a city initiative. It is a provincial initiative. The city is providing advice, input, and, and they have an office to help with communications and things along that line. And the city is clearly involved with all of the infrastructure underneath the road. So that that's a significant um, uh, thing to do. Uh, but you, if you had your planning department, your economic development department, and your city manager actually exploring the opportunities of finding people who could demolish um, uh, Cops Coliseum, or sorry, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> First Ontario, sorry, First Ontario, um, and, and, and the convention center and build new, come up with that agreement, and as a result of that agreement, they get to build so many stories to offset those, those uh, costs to the city. I think that's a real win-win because it is right in the downtown core. So you're not going to have neighbors on one side or the other saying, oh, that tower is too big. It's, it is the downtown. Well, you, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. And I and again, I you know I don't want to be I don't want to be pessimistic. It seems sometimes as though even the obvious things get bogged down. I would like to believe that this one, as long as the idea that a developer came forward with was not totally insane, that uh, it would be. Well, I use the term quid pro quo. It has to be something where the city is receiving a, 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 a certain amount of benefit. And that it would be an equal benefit to the developer. So the developer's getting something out of it. Sure he is. Or she is. Uh, absolutely. Um, and the city is also, because the city in this case, with Mr. Andlauer's um, um, gift, they, they wouldn't be spending the money on the arena or the convention center. This will not be the last time we talk about this, because this, I mean, this really, we got to go to break. This really, to me, if they could pull this off, because I believe if you do this, there's going to spill out. It's going to be stuff around. It, this this is a downtown changing potentially. Yeah. We need to find the innovative ways of doing this type. of And this financing. would be one of those things that would really Absolutely. change the downtown. And hundred percent. Let's hope. Touch veneer. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Uh, Brad Clark. In studio with me today, Brightest Panel in Hamilton Radio. He is a one-man Brightest Panel this evening. There was an apology given this week by the Prime Minister towards uh, LGBTQ people for Mm -hmm. things that had been done to them in the past and for uh, criminal charges that had been brought against them that had in many ways affected their lives. And there were a lot of people, I think uh, probably a majority of people I would expect, who thought, okay, I got no problem with this. This is something that was um, that probably should have been done. But I got to tell you, in, after that was done, one of the first things I thought, because there's also a financial um, recompense being given that people are going to be given some... What's the word I'm looking Settlement. for? Settlement. for Thank you for the hardship done to them, for lost jobs, for whatever else. But one of the first things that came to mind after this was over was we may not have liked the law that was in place, but at the time that those criminal charges were brought, it was the law of the land. That's not the issue. It was where I'm going from that is we are about to legalize marijuana in this country. 
which means there's a lot of people who broke the laws of the land at the time, but we are now going to be saying mm, that that's not a crime anymore. That's not a crime. Are we down the road, 10 years from now, Brad, are we going to be looking at a prime minister standing in front of the House of Commons apologizing to people who have criminal records from marijuana possession, who lost possibilities of jobs because of a criminal record, who couldn't travel, who lost status in their community, whatever else. Are we going to be having a prime minister standing in front of commons, apologizing to those who have a criminal record for marijuana and promising a settlement to them for lost opportunities and pain and suffering they suffered? I would say no. Why? Uh, because one is the criminal code, and the criminal code evolves over time, um, and it can change up and down sentences, all the rest of it. But in terms of the $100 million settlement for members of the LGBT community, uh, the vast majority of that was for civil servants who were pushed out the door because it became known that they were gay. And so um, our human rights, our charter... Uh, demonstrates that there was a wrong that was done, the feds were responsible for that, and there should be uh, uh, an appropriate amount of compensation for those individuals. When you're talking about marijuana, I mean, you could change some of the rules. If they change the rules on, on the level of alcohol that you're allowed, it doesn't mean that s- someone can come forward and say, well, you should uh, pardon me from this, this past charge. It doesn't work that way. So it's a slightly different, in, is, in the judiciary, it's a slightly different um, point of law. It is. I, I guess part of it comes from the fact that we have a current government right now that loves the apologies. And for better or for worse, I mean, in this case, again, I think many people would have agreed with what he did. But we love, we're on the apology tour right now and everything down the road we're sorry for. And if he is in office five or 10 years from now still, I'm not sure I agree with you. I think that those people who, maybe not who had a dime bag, but those people who had a, a penalty that cost them work or cost them a job or something, if the, if the public sentiment changes to look back and say, why in the world did we ever have marijuana as illegal? If that's the common sentiment, I could see an apology down the road for those people. It's, it, it's not apples and apples. I understand that. It, it is apples and oranges, but considering we want to apologize for everything, every slight real or perceived, I just, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that that won't happen down the road. It is possible that, that, um, the Prime Minister will choose to go down that road because they have been doing a number of apologies, as you call it, the apology tour. Um, but I, 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 I don't think that it would serve him well, and I, I, I suspect that it, it certainly wouldn't happen in this term. Um, no, it couldn't happen right re- now. If it, perhaps if he gets reelected or way down the road, but um, it would be they would be hard pressed to even find a, a class action lawsuit that would be up to the current thresholds. On um, you don't think you could find several thousand, maybe more than that, people who say, "Look, uh, because of my criminal record, I was kicked out. Because of my marijuana possession, I was kicked out of school. I lost, I, I, I lost a job. I was fired. I had a drug test at work, and it was marijuana. It was just marijuana, and I lost my job." Yeah, I suspect. I was kicked out of the military for a drug test. Whatever. In order to get a class action lawsuit, there has to be very clear, similar um, situations for each of those people in that class, and I, 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 I would argue that you might find that there may be other circumstances as to why someone had lost their job, not just the marijuana. In this case, it was clear discrimination. This was the reason. It was very clear. They were, you know, they didn't want gays in in the federal government, and it was discriminatory. And um, people lost their livelihood um, because of their sexual orientation. So I I think that the, the settlement is appropriate. I think the apology was appropriate. Uh, but I, I certainly don't see that happening for cannabis. I do also wonder, though, what else? Because there is, and again, not not poo-pooing in any way the apology here, but we there seems to be political gain, almost. There's, there's political capital to be made 
for a party by apologizing. It seems to me you wouldn't be. I don't believe. Maybe I'm just such a cynic. I don't believe Justin Trudeau or any other politician or Barack Obama was great at it down in the states before when he would go around and talk about the things the Americans. There is capital political capital to say we were wrong before. It does play to certain agendas and and, and certain sectors. Uh, but equally, you'll find that there are others who who are just find it repugnant that that he apologized to the gay community. There are still people in our country who are bigoted, who are who discriminate. And, and so, and it, I mean, he, I I wouldn't say I I think it was a risky maneuver. I think he showed leadership on it, and I don't always agree with what Justin Trudeau is doing. Uh, but the reality is there are going to be people who are angry with him for doing see, I don't it. See, I, don't, I don't see this one as all that risky because I really, I don't see that too many people are going to stand up in public now at any place and say, that was wrong No, that's not my point. My point is that there will the be scenes. some people who, who will simply say, well, I'm, I'll never vote for him again. But now, they, they, they were never going to vote for him anyway. to begin with because they're the alt-right, the far-right of, of a, a conservative movement. Um, but they do exist. But it's not just this. Again, we've had, well, the other part about this that I really wonder about is if we are apologizing now and giving settlements to LGBTQ members relatively quickly, as far as the time frame between the apolo- deciding to do the apology and apparently the payouts are coming at some point, I'm not sure, but reasonably soon. Why is the same thing not happening for Indigenous people? That There's been apologies, there's been, but the money is not following. Why is the money not following on that one? <laughs> I don't have an answer for that one. And again, I, you want I, I still, I believe part of it may be political. It's, there's, there are different. Oh, everything's politics. Well, there is more ground to be, uh, to be. This is a part of who Justin Trudeau is. You know, he's very progressive. Um, It's a part of his brand. And that's a progressive thing. Yeah, the sunny, what are they called? Sunny ways. Sunny ways. uh, Mind you, the clouds have been coming. Um, But I, I am still dumbfounded at the reticence of the federal government to deal fairly uh, with our indigenous communities. Uh, it, it just it just strikes me as odd that they can say all of these wonderful, um, loquacious, you know, uh, apologies for a number of things, but then actual settlements and 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 finding a solution to the challenges with the treaties has not happened. But even if, and that's a very broad thing you're just talking about with the treaties. But even if you were to make it much more specific and say. In this particular apology we just had, where they're saying we're going to give $100 million for specific examples, mm-hmm. could you not, leaving the treaties aside and all that, why not just anyone who was in the residential schools? Here's the, there's, a, there's specific things that we can, now that doesn't cover all of everything. I think I thought he did do an there apology is for the residential there, there schools, is. and there was some for settlement. S- for some. Um, but they need to to do it broadly across the country. It is uh, it is an interesting one. I, I am not going on record right now saying that I believe there will not be an apology for marijuana users down the road. Not in two well, years. That sounds. Uh... <laughs> I'm, I, I got myself all backwards. I'm saying not in two years or three years because these things take longer to percolate and to. I mean, again, this thing we're talking about. It could take five years for. But this apology was from 50 years ago. Yes. So it's going to take time. But at some point, when you look at uh, in the polls and in surveys, what how what millennials think about marijuana use, mm-hmm. when they get to the point where it's a few years down the road, and that's the overwhelming sense that marijuana. Why did we ever criminalize it? There will be an apology, and I don't know if there will be a settlement, but there will be an apology, and we'll look back, and and they will say, you know, the prime minister of the day, well, well, we're very, very sorry for anyone who had a criminal record or lost their job or whatever. It'll, it's going to happen. We, we Apologies are gold these days. They're political gold for the people, as I say, for the in certain areas and, and with certain 
groups. Apologies of that nature are either based on the substance of the grievance and they recognize that they had wronged someone, but there is also the ulterior, how would the public react to it? And I think that's why there was such a long delay um, from past governments willing to look at the fact that so many civil servants lost their jobs because of sexual orientation. The, gov- the, the government may have seen the substance to it, but the politics was the public isn't ready for that. And so we now have um, a society is, that is much more evolved uh, in the last 10 years uh, on, on the issue of sexual orientation. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I read a great piece today that I thought was really thought-provoking and it's not, I don't think, a terribly original concept, but this particular person, and I wish I had brought it with me because I, I would love to credit the writer. I don't know who it was. And it was all about the fact that we have more information at our fingertips. We have more newspapers, more online stuff, more things that, in, that can inform us than ever in the history of the world before. But the person was asking, even with all that information, are we in fact any better informed? What do you think? Because I, I, I take his position that was, no, we have all this information and we in fact are far less informed than we ever were before. It's been my experience that when you're searching the internet, you have to be really careful what papers you're citing. And because, you know, as President Trump says, there's fake news out there. Um, and so there are uh, sites that really look professional and look like it might be an academic source, and then you find out afterwards that, no, it was really just made-up nonsense. I think at our fingertips, we were able to search and find really good sites. I, you know, I've searched the law library many times, um, which we never had access to prior to the Internet. You'd have to go to Montreal or Ottawa to, to go through that. Um, but now there are court decisions that are right available and you can actually look up the decision, find the precedents. Um, Every piece of knowledge absolutely. ever done, ever created on the planet is available in your yep. computer. A quick, a quick search. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, you'll find something. But that means that we have, as I say, more information available to us than any other generation in the history of the world. But does that translate to us being more informed? See, I, I just, I, I don't see Depends that. on what the more informed is. Uh, I mean, because if you... If well, I, if it's about the Kardashians, we know everything about the Kardashians. That's my point. And, and locally, we as a society, um, in North America anyways, are very poorly informed on local issues because there is such a breadth of information that you can follow you. I mean, you can listen to radio stations out of the United States, um, satellite TV. So you're not getting the local news like we did when we were younger. We have people listening from Pennsylvania and New Jersey right now. And listen, we love that you're listening. Yep. But it's not local news for them. But it also explains how easy it is to get anything from anywhere now. Absolutely. Anything. You can listen. Once upon a time when I was a kid, and it's not that long ago, but I remember when I was listening to the Blue Jays on the radio in my bedroom on a little transistor radio still. It's, that's in my lifetime. We've gone from trying to pick up the signal that would fade in and out on 1430 when it was AM at the top of the dial where the Jays, Jays were to now I could listen to every single baseball game from Japan if I wanted to, from the Japanese league on my computer. And our children don't even know what a transistor radio is. I, I kept one at home. So someday, <laughs> along with a rotary dial telephone. It's a paperweight now. <laughs> I, have a, I have a ghetto blaster, I have a rotary dial telephone, and I have a transistor radio at home just so someday the grandkids, when they arrive, will see how us old farts live. Well, look at where we are now. We have these Google things. I'm not even sure what they call them, but it's a home system. And you can just say Google or whatever the name is and ask a question. And it's it's like you're in Star Trek. You just say computer and it provides you the information. Uh, you know, I, the next 10, 20 years is going to be absolutely amazing. But I go back to the point. With all that information, are we actually better informed? And No, I don't, I don't think we are. And I think a big reason for that, in addition to some of the things you just cited, is that with all the availability of information now, I really believe that most people 
most people, not all, most people have now locked themselves in a bubble of agreement. They only want to find things that verify and back up their points of view on things. And so when you read columns, when you listen to radio, when you watch TV shows, you don't allow yourself to be immersed in opposing views. You want to hear verification of what you believe, because that makes you sure that you're right, and it's comfortable. Well, and the civil discourse in social media is exactly like that. So you take a position and you don't bend on your position and you just push, 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 and you see people doing it to the point where they actually become abusive with other people. And then what happens when you, when someone who you tweet something out, and let's say Brad Clark tweets something out and it's not really editorializing one way or another, but someone decides they're going to fire back at you with some sort of outrageous, what, I'm not, I mean, I'm using you as an example, but what's the first thing you do then? Block. So anyone who disagrees with me now, I'm going to keep them out of my cone of opinion. And so more and more what we do is we only expose ourselves to those things to which we agree. That's and, true. And that, that to me... I'm not saying it's good, but it's, but it's true. And how do you become informed on something if you never listen to anyone else's point of view? I prefer the discourse. I, I mean, my Twitter account, I, I interact with people and... and point out where I may disagree and why, and, and you come up with a reasonable uh, discourse and you go away happy uh, on both sides. But I, I see your point. There are a lot of people who just take a very strong partisan ideological position and everyone else is crazy. Well, we see it on cable TV, especially in we the We see States. it on CNN. No, but we see it on every, <laughs> but we see it on, every uh, on all the news channels Absolutely. on cable in the States. You can argue that Fox is right-wing, but MSNBC, and it's funny because the people who watch Fox say we're not really that to one extreme, but the people on MSNBC are all loony lefties, and vice versa on the other side. But if you are a diehard liberal in the States, you're never going to be watching Fox. And if you're a diehard conservative, you're never going to be watching MSNBC. Unless you like yelling at the TV. Well, yeah, if you really want to annoy yourself. But so you don't do it. We find, and up here, it's not, I don't think, as exaggerated. But there are still columnists and analysts and commentators that you will watch and that you will turn off as soon as they come on. Well, has media become less balanced than it was when you and I first got into media? And that's a good question because I... Well, what are you describing as media? See, because if it's just people who are podcasting or are writing comments online that have a blog or something, that's a different... So if you're talking about the legacy media, is it less I'm balanced? I'm talking major television networks. Are, are they balanced? Is CNN balanced? Is Fox balanced? I don't think they are. I don't think they would either either admit that they're not balanced, uh, but they continue because their ratings are strong. They're they're doing what they're doing because it is a ratings game for them. And what when you ratings? and I were in, in introduced to to radio and journalism, the, the, the fact was that you had to present both sides of the story. And, but what gets ratings and what gets that kind of stuff? Outrage, and, outrage, and, and pro- opinion, pro- provocative positions. Uh, the the fighting where you you know you, it's just you and I here, but you know you have five six people kind of screaming at each other on late night CNN, and you can't hear a damn thing that they're saying. But guess what? They're doing fantastic in the ratings. There are places still, and and I know I'm a newspaper guy as well. The good newspapers they will have columnists, they will have opinionators who take a side, but they still have. Real reporters. Real reporters and news that, you know, we all acknowledge that nobody is purely, perfectly objective. We all know that. We all have biases. But that try to be fair and give both sides. You have to dampen the bias in order to provide a fairly balanced piece of information and let the reader decide. But there are other places. There are other places, very popular places, where the intent is never to be balanced. And the problem is those are often very entertaining. Well, we only have to look to the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun. They're, one is seen as a liberal paper. One is seen as a conservative paper. Unabashedly so. 
I just I, when I when I read this piece today about are we better informed, it it a the answer is I don't think so. I think we have way more knowledge and information at our disposal if we choose to use it. But I don't think we're more if more informed means more capable of if knowledge can lead to wisdom. I don't think knowledge equals wisdom, but if knowledge can lead to wisdom, we have the potential to be very wise people, but I don't think we use it very often because we, again, we we find what we like and we stay in that lane. I can recall teachers and professors saying to me, it's not that you have to know this, it's that you need to know where to find it and be able to use it. So if our internet world has made that easier for people and they're doing it properly and referencing, then that's fantastic. However, the quality of the information on the internet really does not necessarily meet our standards. And so if you pick the wrong location, you're going and some students are finding out at university, you know, they're quoting and referencing <laughs> wackadoodles on a platter somewhere in the States uh, that is not really up to our academic standards. Well, one of the things that I told my kids uh, when they were into high school and had to start writing Mm -hmm. papers and doing things, I said, the first thing is don't ever cite Wikipedia as your (laughs) lone source. There's nothing wrong with using Wikipedia as a launching place to say, oh, it says that Brad Clark has a third foot growing out of his back. Well, I, I deleted that. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is, okay, that's great. Now go and find other sources that will tell you Correct. that. Not on, and the funny thing was, I was on Wikipedia the other day about something. I can't remember what. And I wish I could think of it. And there was something on there that was blatantly wrong that I knew was wrong. But it, there it is. And that's, that is probably the site for students now. They don't want to admit it. But that is the site for students. Well, if they're using it as a launch. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But if they're relying it for academic references, there's big, a lot big of, mistake. There's a lot of things. I, I'll tell you. You go, might as well go down to the south and talk to someone and use them as a reference because you ain't getting it right. <laughs> uh, oh, we're going to go to break. But I, I spoke at a, uh, a university course. Uh, I was asked to come and speak to a class two or three years ago. And it was a journalism course, and what I found was really fascinating. The professor came up with a brilliant idea. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Before I arrived, everyone in the class had to write a one-page profile on me. And they and anyway, and when I got there, he collected all these pieces of paper and handed them to me up at the front. <laughs> and I started Sorry. reading through them. <laughs> and what was amazing to me was that of the 40-something kids, I had received one phone call. I'm not hard to find. I had received one phone call from someone asking some questions. Apparently, there are several other people in the world named Scott Radley or some similar enough version of that name. There are. (laughs) Scott Rodley, Scott Ridley, Scott Rudley, whatever else, Scott Bradley. I learned some fascinating stuff about myself. <laughs> Alternative facts. I think I was. I think one of them. I was an archbishop in the Church of England. Um, like it was, and I'm reading this, and that's I think, another dimension. <laughs> and I'm reading all this stuff, and I and I actually it was it was great because he had told me go to town. I didn't mention the names that were on the pieces of paper. But it was like that's you, too funny. Are you kidding? Like all this stuff, almost everything. Almost, now, there were some that got it pretty right, but almost everything in a lot of these were completely crazy. I had grown up in Arkansas. I had a car dealership in Virginia. It was on and on and on. And who? this is the information we have available to us, but we don't. I don't think we know what to do with it. I don't think we know how to handle it. I don't think we know how to apply it. So we just take it in, we absorb it, and then we just spit it out, but we don't know if it's right or not. And I think human nature... People are traditionally lazy. Well, it's easy. It's an easier way of doing it, and people do have call aversion, and they really don't want to go out of the way to talk to someone. Um, oh, but call aversion. Oh, yeah. Oh, you said call aversion. I was wait. What's the version? Uh, no, I call, call aversion. aversion. <laughs> I got it. I wow. got it. 
I'll get my hearing checked this weekend. It's a senior moment yeah. for Scott. <laughs> I just, I, there are other. And he's got the headphones on, That's guys. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on it. I'll, I'll unplug my ears. But when you were in college learning about journalism, were you easy to say, okay, I'm going to go out and make a phone call and interview someone? It was it was something that you had to build build up your courage and actually. Well, see, no I was, wanted to do it. I was just on the leading edge just before the internet really became a thing. Yep. So if I wanted to find stuff, you had to go to the library, and we had this is a, this was the bane of my existence of every journalism student at Ryerson. We hated this part, this assignment, but it was a terrific assignment. We had a course you had to take called I think it was just called information. And the professor was a guy named Jerry Davey, who was, he was a man who was passionate about people finding information to the point where we had, every student had their 50 queries they had to answer. Q-U-E, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, queries. 50 questions you had to answer. <laughs> and what was amazing was we had 125 students in our class, not one question was the same on two different things. He had come up with 50 for every one of those 125 people. And they were things like, what is the fourth verse of Baba Black Sheep? And you, and it was like amazing stuff you had to go and dig out, but you had to go. Teaches you to dig, to to mine. And now while the internet is I'm not the old guy who's saying, oh, the internet's a horrible thing. No, no, the internet is a wondrous thing. It's an amazing thing, but it also has the potential, if you don't put a little bit of brain power into it, to lead you down a wrong path. Political parties have people who just mine the internet. That's what they do. They know how to it's search. It's all there That's if right. you want to find Absolutely. it. Absolutely. The good and the bad. The good and the bad, but you have to put the effort in, yes. and that is where this whole thing spins back to. Are we more informed? I don't think so because we don't put the effort in to know whether what we're looking at is actually truth, is actually true, is actually based on anything. And as a result, half the time, as you said, or I said, or whoever said, it's so much easier just to flip on a show about the Kardashians or the housewives of wherever, and it doesn't take any brain power, and I'll just do that. Does that make me smarter? Does that make me more informed? Well, if you want to know about what butt size Kim Kardashian has today, I suppose it does. I was going to say butt, but it's okay. You can do it. (laughs) But. (laughs) But if you actually want to know anything about the world, unless Kim Kardashian's butt is talking these days, you probably won't. Okay, we're going to get in trouble. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Brad Clark in studio. Uh, let me go to this. Now, we talked about this this week on the show, just along these lines. But I want to bring it up because, well, because I like the topic. Um, <laughs> you just want to stump me so bad. No, no, no. It's not a stump <laughs> thing. This is more of a, what is okay? What is allowed? British Airways surveyed off, uh, 1,500 travelers on a number of airline etiquette questions. Are you allowed? Are you not allowed? What is the proper etiquette when it comes to armrests? You're on a plane, someone's beside you. What is the proper etiquette? Because there's only one armrest and there's two people. What is the what is the etiquette? What would you do? What would Brad Clark do if you got there and the, there was, do you elbow the person out of the way to grab the armrest or do you share? If they're not flowing over top of the armrest, then we would share. of respondents say you should stay on your half of the armrest. That's very difficult to do when it's one inch thick. Yeah, it's... But, and that's very like skin to skin, arm to arm, lovey rubbing the whole way. But anyway, that's their answer. Okay, this, this one. Is it okay when you get on a plane, you've been, it's a long day... crop dust? (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long day of traveling... You're tired, your feet are hurt, so you got to air out the puppies, so you take off the shoes. Oh, and let no, Doritos. <laughs> no. Is it okay to take off the shoes? No, absolutely not. I did fly to Nashville, Tennessee, and someone took them off, and it really smelled like those really bad cheesy Doritos all the way there, and I was gasping for air. 59% of people say it's cool to take your shoes off. That's <laughs> fine. Now, they've never sat beside Dorito Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and for clarification, by the way, 87% go the other way and say, but not socks. No socks off on the plane. You cannot take off your stinky socks on the plane 
and like dry them over the seat top or something. That 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 is not cool. Um, if the person in the aisle seat is snoozing, and you need to use the loo, is it okay to wake them, or do you have to hold it until they naturally come to? Unless they want another odor to deal with, I would suggest that they let me out. <laughs> Uh, 80% of respondents said, yes, it's okay to wake them, but only once per trip. Oh, you better, you better. Dude, I'm over 50. It ain't going to be once per trip. (laughs) There's no way. You know, this is totally off. This is not in this thing, but I was thinking to myself, you can't on an airplane, it's okay to go and like have a number one. You can't use an airplane bathroom for a number two, can you? Under any circumstance? Because you're in an enclosed air pressurized tube. There's no way you can do that to the rest of the passengers in that cabin. Anyway, I'm not going to... If you cropped us down the line, (laughs) the plane is landing. (laughs) If the... Let's let's move on. If the neighbor next to you in the seat next to you is snoring, is it okay to give them a nudge just so they know that they're really like sawing wood and they may not want to do that. Is it okay or no? Uh, I have been nudged because I do snore and I snore very, very loud. So yeah, it's okay. (laughs) 66% say they would never nudge someone for their snoring. They would just videotape them and put it on YouTube, probably. The guy in front of me thought there was something wrong with the engine and it was me snoring. (laughs) What's next? (laughs) Uh, Last one. Uh, Is it okay to ask someone to switch seats because you want to be with someone else? Yes. See, I don't have a problem with that one. Of all the things, I think that one is the one that is the, uh, unless it's because someone took off their socks. Yeah, no, they wouldn't let me switch my seat. (laughs) (laughs) The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.